Okay, if you take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to be, again, looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 9, and I'm going to be looking at the sixth or the seventh way to resist the enemy. Of course, we're going to be looking at other passages of Scripture, so be ready to use your Bible this morning. And we've been looking at the Christian's obligation for resistance. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 9, but resist him, that is Satan, that is his minions against God's people, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So part of the suffering that we may be entering into, uh, it could be that also Satan has his fingerprints all over it. And so we have to be ready for that and be ready to resist it because it's our obligation as Christians to resist it. And so far, we have been looking at uh, other reasons why to resist in the faith. That means the body of doctrine given to us from the Word of God. Secondly, to uh, resist by discerning our strengths and weaknesses and tendencies towards sin and then fighting against them with the Word of God. Thirdly, to resist the antagonist by maintaining a sanctified imagination. Fourthly, by, to resist the adversary by putting off sin and putting on righteousness. And then, of course, to resist by putting on Christ. And then last week we looked at to resist by warfare praying. If we look again in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 7, you go back, it says, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So prayer becomes a a very vital part of the Christian life, maybe the most battled that we will ever have uh, is to battle for prayer to make sure it, it stays within our life. It's, it's not only to keep awake and alert uh, with all our faculties under control, but also to pray with the public gathered assembly and also private prayer uh, that we offer up uh, throughout the day as a believer to our Lord, uh, thanking him, um, asking him, petitioning him, interceding for other people and before him. And so I ended last time with this quote. Uh, Well, that's this one right here. And it's that the chief concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He laughs at our toils. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Because when we pray, we're in a sense in the control room of God. We have a new and living way into his presence So there's nothing blocking us to go into God's presence for prayer. And so when we are there, Satan trembles the most because he knows that, as James tells us, the effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. So a praying believer, genuinely praying before God, has incredible power before the enemy to resist him. And so that's really where 
I want to, uh, what I want to be looking at today, but I want to add one thing today, and it's going to be the seventh reason to resist and to resist by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Now, I want to examine this spiritual discipline that has most really virtually disappeared from almost all of modern Christianity. Fasting is a discipline which most of us know little about, even less have practically experienced its effects and benefits. Yet when we read Scripture, fasting is mentioned here, and then it's mentioned there. It is not mentioned all the time, but when it is mentioned, it's a significant reason why the people fasting and praying are doing that. So this Lord's Day, I would like to blow the dust off the cover of this subject and reintroduce it to us because it is the most helpful discipline that you and I may ever encounter in our Christian experience. And I would like to examine the subject by attempting to answer four questions. And the first question is this. What exactly is fasting? Well, by way of definition, it says that this term, nestia, means fasting or abstention from food, one who's not eaten or is empty, abstention from food for some religious purpose. However, fasting should not be confined to food or drink. Fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some spiritual purpose. Now, of course, to back that definition up, we have to look at some scripture, and that's what we're going to do. But before I do that, let's pray. Lord, this morning, I ask you as I come before you and before your people, that as we look at your word concerning this important subject, Lord, I pray that after today we would be more cognizant of what fasting is and that we would actually throughout our life, practice it from time to time. Especially, Lord, when we see that there is a need for it. Today, Lord, help us to recognize when those needs come up before us and in our life. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So there are some Old Testament and some New Testament passages that I want to look up. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse number five, and I want to also bring out to you some of the differences in the translations that we have. I'm using the New American Standard Bible, uh, the 1995 version. Some people have the New King James Bible they like to use, which is a good translation. Some people have the English Standard Version, uh, which is also a good translation, and so that translation uh, is one that probably is the most popular today within our uh, churches. And so I want to just bring out some differences in those translations. And so 
as we do that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse number 5, it says this. It says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, the New King James Bible says it adds something to it. If you notice on the screen, it says in New King James, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So that adds fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the reason why that the King James would add it and the other translations would not is because uh, the shortest text is decisively supported by all the early manuscripts. And so the earlier manuscripts would not include that, but the King James manuscripts were later manuscripts that they would include it. But nonetheless, that the stress is still in the context, that this is more than just praying here. This is serious, serious praying, because if you notice in the text, it, it's, it says here that, there's an important spiritual matter going on in this passage. This verse, there is the importance of to come apart from something to focus more completely on the spiritual discipline of seeking the face of God. And so another translation would, put, would say it like this, so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. So here in this passage, the husband and the wife break away from intimacy, from sexual union, just for an agreed amount of time for the purpose of some spiritual matter in which they are engaged in fasting and prayer. So there there is something that is heavy upon the heart of the husband or the wife, and they are separating themselves for a short agreed amount of time for the purpose of seeking God's face about a particular matter in that person's life. Now, another passage that I want you to turn to is in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 15 through 29. In that passage of Scripture, we see that Jesus is uh, talking, is going to talk to his disciples, and his disciples just failed in their mission. Remember, Jesus sent them out uh, in in the fields to uh, heal the sick, to preach the gospel, even to cast out demons. And so we find, we pick it up in Mark chapter 9, look at verse number 15, and I want you to notice what is happening here. Mark 9, 15, it says, Immediately, and immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him, running up to greet Jesus, in verse 16, and he asked them, what are you discussing? What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. 
verse 19, and he answered them and says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he says, From childhood. And it has been... It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy came, became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Now, What was the cause of the disciples' failure? And what, was it, what is its solution? Well, if you look now to verse number 28, it says, When he came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately, saying, Why could we not drive it out? When you had given us the power to do that, why couldn't we do it? See, the question is, Why didn't we have the ability to cast out the demon? This shows that the disciples are concerned more about what they could not accomplish and their loss of power than the real cause of their failure. See, Jesus tells his disciples the cause of their failure, and he does that in verse number 29, and look what it says. And he said to them, this kind cannot come out but by anything but prayer. Now, again, that passage of Scripture in different translations, it says in the the New American Standard, it cannot come out by, by anything but prayer. In the New King James, by nothing but prayer and fasting. And then, again, in the ESV, by anything but prayer. So, in other words, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is not saying... Some demon exorcisms require prayer, but others do not. He is saying that whatever we take to the spiritual battlefield, if we go in our own strength and our own pride and our own self-sufficiency, we have lost the battle before it begins. Unbelief carries a danger with it that can severely handicap a believer, leaving them with a powerless and an ineffective life. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to maintain influence and power and overcome your enemy and your weaknesses, you must pray. Without complete dependence on Jesus, the able one, you can have no power at all. So prayer and faith testify that spiritual power is not in oneself, but in God alone. So, see, the solution to their failure was a deeper 
more consistent prayer life. And their prayer, of course, where prayer turns faith into action, prayer maintains effectiveness and power. And continual contact with Jesus through the Holy Spirit maintains effectiveness and power in life and ministry. And it could be you don't see great things in your personal life and in your church life because of lack of prayer. The same narrative is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, and I want you to notice what it says there in Matthew. It says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So the NAS does include it uh, in the text this time. And, of course, the New King James also adds that into the text. The ESV uh, does not even insert this passage. So if you have the English Standard Version, it's not even there. All right? That's why I have a disagreement with the ESV, but that's my own thing. All right? And... Um, because they should just leave it there, because the standard, the King James set a standard that we should keep. Those verses do not change anything uh, at all, uh, and so we, we should just leave them there. But the point is that there's a stress on a prayer that is connected with fasting, with doing something in our life that is uh, bringing us to a place where we are seriously mourning in our heart about something. We have a serious issue in, that has come into our life, and it seems like nothing is working. Nothing is taking care of this issue. And I've prayed about it, and I have asked other people to pray about it, and yet there seems to be nothing moving here. See, that's a time where we have to step back and break away, and it's a time that we may, from time to time, have to not only pray, but fast. Now, I want you to take a look at a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, because I said there was New Testament and Old Testament passages that deal with fasting, and one of them is Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 through 3. Now, while you're turning there, I want to set up some of the background here, and Daniel uh, is really very heavy in his heart. He is he's disquieted in his spirit. He's very anxious in his spirit. And uh, in the context of that whole section, Daniel, there's two reasons why he is anxious in his spirit. And Daniel's concern had to do with the returning exiles from the, after the Babylonian captivity. They were going to come back to Jerusalem, and they were going to, of course, build the walls of Jerusalem, and reestablish the temple. And as Daniel saw the people, some only 50,000 people came back to Jerusalem, he's, he's realizing that they're not going to be able to do the job without the help of God. They don't have anything. They just were in exile. They're coming back to Jerusalem, and so he's, gonna, he's realizing that the job to rebuild the temple is not going to be an easy task. In fact, the prophet uh, Ezra said in his uh, work, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem. The work on the house of God in Jerusalem has ceased, and it, will, it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
So the work to rebuild God's house was stopped in 536 B.C. and resumed again in 520 B.C. That was a delay of 16 years. So Daniel's viewing all this stuff going on, and, but we do know right on schedule that uh, God, of course, finished the temple in 515 B.C. Now, maybe Daniel was wondering why things had to be so hard and heavy. Daniel said the message was true and one of great conflict. In fact, in the context of Daniel, it could refer to a great earthly wars, it could refer to spiritual warfare, and it also would include the forces between God and Satan that go on behind the scenes. So it just goes to show that all true all true endeavors for the Lord will meet with some level of opposition and struggle. So brethren, don't be discouraged and don't think it's a strange thing that the Christian life is a life of tussle and continual battle. It is. That's the kind of life it is. There's a second reason for the disquieted spirit within Daniel that drove him to ask God for more understanding about what's going to happen to the people of Israel in the future. He was 85 years old at this time. Daniel wanted to find out more in relation to what will be in store for Israel. So what did Daniel do? We know that Daniel prayed like three times a day. But this time he does something else. He takes the cannon out. And the cannon is is fasting. If you look at the passage of Scripture now, look at verse 2 and 3 of Daniel chapter 10. It says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks, I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were complete. In other words, from this passage of Scripture, we know that he was engaged in fasting and prayer for 21 days. This is a 21-day commitment of Daniel And Daniel, we know, had access to the official reports coming back uh, to the government about the conditions of the first arrival to Jerusalem, the people coming, and the progress reports on the building projects. Most of the news deeply concerned him. And so the Hebrew verb in verse number two gives us a sense of the depth of Daniel's concern over the condition of the Jews who had returned to Palestine. Daniel kept himself continually mourning for three weeks. His soul was deeply concerned. And it says to what point that he didn't eat any tasty food, didn't eat any meat, no wine entered his mouth. This looks like that he, all the earmarks of a bread and water fast, coupled with no attention to personal grooming, He says, I did not use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks. He must have stunk a little bit after three weeks. uh, But you can see the weight of his heart. The practice of fasting is, is a discipline that should be taken up from time to time, especially if there is a situation in your life 
that is weighty, and it brings a mournfulness to your soul that can only be brought before God at the exclusion of all the regular functions of life, like food, like drink, like bathing, like personal hygiene. Sometimes you have to pull yourself apart. So as I started out saying, so then what is fasting? Fasting is, number one, a denying of humanity's strongest urges so that there can exist a full force and devotion of earnestness in prayer before God. Secondly, fasting is voluntary. It's not required or forced or motivated by self-seeking or self-interest. Also, fasting is a personal matter between an individual and God. So that means that fasting must be done unto God before the eye of the Father. So then what is the purpose of fasting as we move on? The purpose would be, number one, for prayer and meditation. A specific prayer intention is in mind. For example, we consider the passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 4. We see what's going on here is that prayer and fasting is offered up to God for a specific reason. In Acts 13, verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. In other words, that when people are set apart for some kind of work God has them to do in the world, like a mission project, whether it be short or long, that the church came together, they prayed and fasted, so the right people would go out. And the people would be ready to go out, and we, they would always have the intention of the church uh, and the, the thought of the church that they were going to go out with the prayer of that church. And so they set them apart by how? Fasting and prayer. And then again in Acts 14, in verse number 23, they were setting apart elders in the church uh, identifying them and then ordaining them. And it says in Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and f- with fasting, they can- commanded, them to the lo- commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In other words, in that case, they were setting apart the elders of a church and they did that by pra- fasting and prayer because that's a serious matter. Uh, who's going to be the elders and the leaders in the church? They have to be qualified men. They have to be uh, men who are, are really full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. So are they the ones that are going to be part of leading the congregation? So the congregation gets together and prays, and they fast for who's going to be the next elders. And then there would be that of just seeking God. In 2 Samuel, you remember the time when David... Uh, is having uh, his his wife has a son. Actually, Bathsheba has a son, and that son uh, grows ill and 
is ready to die. And so what does David do in this? He seeks God. It says in 2 Samuel, while the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live. So he knew that fasting and prayer got the attention of God. So if God was going to save the child, then that was his last resort. And he prayed, but God did not save the child. Of course, that child died because of the result of his own sin, of committing adultery with Bathsheba, uh, committing uh, Uriah, her husband, to the hottest part of battle in which he died and lost his life. And so we see, though, fasting was part of the mindset of the people of God to get a hold of God and to seek out his face. And then, of course, there is the story of Esther, when the decree was sent out to slaughter the Israelites throughout all the regions and provinces. And what does she do? She gets everyone to fast and pray. And because of that, uh, the people were saved, and God delivered them in that particular case. And then one last one for the Old Testament I want you to look up, and it's Ezra. Chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And this is under really exceptional, an exceptional circumstance. But I want you to notice in Esther, uh, chapter, did I say Ezra? Esther, chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. It says this. In verse 16, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So in Esther, that's what happened, and of course, in this case, God did deliver, and so the Jews were allowed to fight on their behalf and uh, reverse the curse that would come upon them by slaughtering all the Jews. God answered the prayer there. And then another uh, passage of Scripture, yes, also in Ezra, is in chapter 8, in verse 21. This is for an acknowledgement of our entire submission and dependence upon God. In this case, in Ezra, it would be the case of asking God for protection for a safe trip. You ever ask God to protect you on a, 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 a travels or on a trip? Well, I want you to notice what it says here. In, in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 to 23, it says, Then, Verse 21, then I proclaimed the fast there at the river of Hava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones and our possessions. For I was ashamed to request, request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against those who forsake him. 
So we fasted and sought out our God and concerning this matter, and notice what it says there, and he listened to our entreaty. God listened to them. So that means that fasting manifests our dependence, our humility, and our devotion to the living God, giving him full attention at a particular point in our life. So that brings me to another, another question. How do we fast? Well, there's a wrong way to fast. And the wrong way is this way. Fasting for the sake of just doing it. That would be wrong to do. Also, fasting for direct, immediate results, as if fasting was some kind of magical thing we do. We should never think of it in a magical way, like we're rubbing a magic bottle. Uh, That's not the point, and that would be a wrong way to do it. And then, of course, this would be one that may happen, fasting for the physical and confusing with the spiritual. In other words, the motive is really to lose weight, to cleanse the body, you know, for some selfish or carnal reasons. And I'm sure that, you know, that may be a benefit of, of fasting, but that's not the motive that drives you to do it. It's a mournful and heavy heart that drives you to do it. And then also, a last thing would be there, the wrong way to do it is fasting to show yourself more spiritual than others acting uh, really with no heart devotion, like the Pharisees that we're going to see in Matthew chapter 6, only to be seen by men. Oh, look at that person. They're fasting. They must be holy. You know, you don't want people to, you don't want to draw attention to yourself in that way. In fact, in Matthew uh, chapter 6, turn there with me, please. In Matthew chapter 6, the gospel of Matthew, we see there is a right way to fast. Uh, And that way is we have indicators within this passage of Scripture of how to do it and what not to do also here. And so there is a right way to fast. And what is the right way to fast in Matthew 6, verse 16 and 17? It should be, first of all, as unsuspecting as possible. In other words, in this case, normal grooming procedures, not like Daniel. for, For it says in verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, this fast is unsuspecting. People don't know you're doing it. Only you know you're doing it. Maybe some people close to you may know you're doing it, uh, you know, when your wife says, well, how come you're not eating today? You know, you have to say, well, you know, uh, you know, I'm fasting. I mean, you can tell her that. She, you're one, right? You're one flesh, so you can tell her that. But it's not like you put it in the church bulletin saying, I'm fasting this week. Or you put it on the prayer sheet that you're fasting this week. No, it's between you and the Lord. And so you're coming, you're breaking away from things so you can fast. And then secondly, the right way to do it is it would be, with honorable motives, in verse 16, it says, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. We, we want to have honorable motives that we're not doing it for, for anyone. Uh, we don't do it to feel or to appear more spiritual uh, at all whatsoever. So our motives are, are clean before the Lord. And then also, uh, 
third way to do it correctly is as secret as possible. Uh, It's between you and the Lord. It's between you and no one else. And so you're bringing your request to the Lord. And maybe no one else may know what those requests are or why you're burdened by a particular thing. But you know that this is the only way, this is the, the thing that God would want you to do to break away from all the distractions of life. And there's so many today. Of course, you def- definitely have to leave your phone somewhere uh, and, and your computers shut off because all those distractions are, are just over the top when it comes to focusing your attention on anything. But then also as secret as possible in Matthew 6, verse number 18, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but your father who is in secret and your father who sees what, you, what is done in secret will reward you. So your father in heaven sees what you're doing. He knows that you are in this position and want to get his attention, and he sees that. And that's the most important part of fasting, that you are definitely going along with the last one. You forget yourself, and you give yourself entirely, entirely to God. So that would bring me to the last question, and it would be this. When you are... All right, so the question is, when should you fast? Well, when you are compelled or led by spiritual reasons, you want to detach yourself from the world of the material so that your thinking becomes rightly focused upon God. I don't know if you have ever fasted before for spiritual reasons. One thing that happens about after the second day when the your stomach stops grumbling and wanting food is you start not desiring food and your your attention span almost gets so precise and focused about what you're doing that you just kind of get pulled into it and you actually begin to forget some of the things that are going on in your life for this for the sake of that particular getting a hold of God one man said this about fasting He said, God's chosen fast is the fast which he has appointed, that which is set apart for him, to minister to him, to honor and glorify him, that which is designed to accomplish his sovereign will. So many times the Spirit of God may bring it upon us to seek God out for the sake of God's will being done in our life concerning a a particular matter. And then when should we fast the second reason would be this, when your soul is burdened in the battle against spiritual wickedness and you are aware it is the Lord that you must intervene with. Your soul is burdened. And remember, in battle, battle is a wearying time, especially spiritual battle, where you're battling against sin, your own sin. You may be battling against the sin of someone else. You're battling against the, the, just the mindset of the world and how the world wants to press you into its mold. And then you're also battling against spiritual wickedness in high places. Again, that passage of Scripture in Matthew where it says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. There is something about it that uh, is special in the life of a believer. And then, of course, there is a last thing, 
and it's that when uh, you should fast, when you need to express mourning for your sins and gain self-control and spiritual discipline to run the race to accomplish God's work, right? That you are going to discipline yourself, your body, because you want to run the race better. Because you know, as well as I do from Scripture, that some things we have to lay off aside out of our life, put out of our life, is not always sinful. Paul says, I'm going to put away the things that are not profitable to me, that, that actually are a disadvantage to me, but they're not sinful. But they just hinder me from running the race. They hinder me from spiritual maturity. They hinder me from going forward. And so that becomes part of it. In fact, that what Paul said in Corinthians, he, he said there in Corinthians, uh, in verse number 26, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So many people are slaves of their bodies. Their bodies tell their minds when to eat, when to, how much to eat, when to sleep, when to get up, and so on. Instead of your body being in control, your mind needs to be in control of your body. The Spirit of God needs to be in control of you. And in fact, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I can actually say no to things that I once always say, said yes to. So, Instead, Christians need to run to win, and that means self-renunciation, self-discipline, so that God is glorified in our bodies. And why is that? Because it also says in Corinthians that you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So in conclusion... Fasting is a season of spiritual, earnest, and elevated devotion of the entire being upon God, set apart to a special task or objective, and accompanied by a soul deeply lowered before God and fervently engaged in pleading for his blessing, whether that be occasional or a special blessing. So there's really only one application for this message. It's about time to seriously consider and from time to time implement this very powerful spiritual weapon. It is a canon. It is more than just praying. And we do it for to seriously seek out the face of God concerning a particular matter. And so this is definitely a way that we resist the enemy is that fasting would be one of those pieces of armor that we put on that really can send Satan running from us and giving God the glory and us the victory over a particular thing in our life. So like I said, it's not required to do this. This is not commanded in Scripture to do this. This is something we voluntarily do from time to time. But I just want you to be aware that this 
is in your arsenal. This is in your weapons bag against the enemy. Once in a while, take it out and use it, especially if there's something going on in your life that's heavy uh, and there doesn't seem to be a change in it. Even, even, if, even if it's victory over a particular sin that's kept you in bondage for many, many years and months uh, and you had no victory over it, that this is the time to say, Lord, I'm tired of this thing controlling my life and I want to come before you in this time of prayer and fasting so you give me victory over this thing so I can put it to death and put it away from me forever and go on and live for you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. See, it's going to be times like that that you and the Lord get together and accomplish something in the time of prayer and fasting. I know that I've done it before, and it is an incredible time in your Christian walk in life, and it is a very beneficial time. I would say that almost every time I've done it, I have gained victory over the things that were burdening me in my life at that time, and never have they returned again. And so, uh, again, I just want to admonish you uh, in the teaching of Scripture to use it and because it is effective. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this morning, for your people, Lord, for the Word of God. Lord, Lord just for the instruction in some of the Scripture that we looked at on how prayer and fasting go together and how they are such a useful weapon before the enemy, before the flesh, before the world. And that, Lord, I pray as your people that we would take more seriously than ever the admonition this morning to take on this particular weapon so we can resist the enemy, so we can overcome the flesh, so we can give you glory in something that has been burdening us in our lives. So we can put to death a sin that has been keeping us in bondage. And so, Lord, we can be freed up more than ever to worship and serve you with the time you give us and, uh, and we have left on this earth. I pray that for us, Lord, not only individually but as a church body. And I ask you this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.